I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Today's podcast episode is all about attitudes about sexuality and aging and some facts about intimacy and aging and sexuality and older adulthood. It's important to know that our attitudes about sexuality and aging might actually influence an older adult's sexual health. So researchers have found that sex among older adults is often viewed very stereotypically as shameful, disgusting, laughable, and even non-existent. And of course, these views are wrong and can lead to internalized stigma and increased sexual problems for older adults. I even during this episode in this interview with Dr. Maggie Syme, I share an example, a, a clinical example of sex being denied to an older adult, even in their own personal, private sex life, as an example of non-existent sex, or you shouldn't be thinking about that at your age. And of course, when we internalize stigma, stigma related to later life sexuality actually has harmful effects for older adults. Much of the research has been done in healthcare systems and long-term care communities related to sexuality and aging. And what research has found is that there are incredibly mixed results on permissive versus restrictive attitudes about sexuality and aging. Current research and healthcare policies also suggest that aging stigma, specifically related to sexual expression, is present within healthcare institutions where aging sexual concerns are often underreported, ignored, and left untreated. And that gives us some information about what is valued among staff as it relates to older adults. So are older adults actually having sex? In a recent survey of more than a thousand adults between 65 and 80 years old, and this was published in 2021, and today's guest and I talk about this, this survey found that close to 51% of men and close to 31% of women report being sexually active. In this same survey, when it came to discussing sexual health with healthcare providers, only 17.3 of adults 65 to 80 reported speaking to their healthcare provider about sexual health in the past two years. And of those, the vast majority, like close to 61%, initiated that conversation. 
Okay, so now researchers, and one of those researchers is today's guest, conducted a community sample of older adults to see. So do older adults in the community, not staff, not healthcare providers, just general older adults living in the community, what sort of sexual stigma beliefs do they hold? And what researchers found, one of those researchers, like I said, being today's guest, found that beliefs that stigmatize sexuality and aging might not be as prevalent in the general population of older adults as it is in healthcare systems and in long-term care communities. And that's an interesting phenomenon. Researchers are attributing this to baby boomers moving into older adulthood and replacing previous generations. And of course, baby boomers bringing a more sexually liberal belief system that places higher importance on sexual well-being. And of course, that's a broad generalization about a cohort, right? But we know with the hippie movement, I was a child of the hippie movement. My middle name is Moon. It was born in Switzerland in the Alps to American parents. It was an interesting time. There was a lot more sexual liberation. Okay, now let me tell you about today's guest and what we're going to talk about today. So today's guest is Dr. Maggie Syme. She's currently a project director at Hebrew Senior Life Marcus Institute for Aging. Her research is focused on sexual health and wellness in later life, and specifically on issues related to sexual consent and ageism. Prior to her current project director role, Dr. Syme was an associate professor and associate director of research at Kansas State University Center on Aging. Today, Dr. Syme and I talk about what it means to be a sexual citizen, attitudes about sexuality and aging, current research on intimacy and aging, benefits. We talk about the benefits of sexuality and intimacy in older adulthood. We talk about my favorite topic, which is dementia and sexual expression, and what sexual liberation looks like for older adults. All right, let's jump into this interview with Dr. Maggie Syme. Can you share a little bit about um, where you come from and where you're at now? Absolutely. So I am a farmer's daughter. I grew up in the ruralist of rural Montanas that you can get in the corner up by Canada and North Dakota. Um, I think there's less than 2,000 people in the town that was seven miles away right now. I graduated one of six from a private high school in the area. So humble beginnings, maybe, but it makes a lot of sense to me when I think about my journey to Jero because that's who our people were, right? Like I spent most of my younger life in the spaces of older adults at my grandmother's house. It was a gathering place for the community. She had uh, coffee ladies who would come over uh, probably at least once a week, if not just drop in periodically. And, you know, our community events were centered around the older generation. There was just a sense of, comfort, ease, and really simpatico way of communicating for me and older adults. And I think it goes all the way back to that. So for 18 years, I lived in small town, Montana, and then 
moved to Spokane, Washington for college. And from there, just got bigger and bigger, you know, LA, San Diego, Boston. I mean, I did spend some time back in small town America and Kansas, for sure. Rock chalk. Um, and landed back here in Boston after I was in fellowship here, really just chasing the aging world. I mean, there are a few spaces in, I think, the U.S. where aging is kind of the place to be, and Boston was one of them for me. So um, that's really where I ended back up, and I'm really happy to be here because there. I mean, if you want, it's like a candy store for aging professionals. If you want to work at, you know, Fenway Health and get into LGBT older adult work, I mean, in community clinics and, or if you want Harvard, you know, and it's just all levels. So tell us about your current position because you said you were a project. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about being in Boston in your current position. Yeah, so I'm a project director right now at the Marcus Aging Institute in Hebrew Senior Life. I was shortly before this an associate professor and decided that that wasn't the life for me in work. I think who I am professionally is part researcher, but bigger part advocate. And being in aging, that's a perfect fit, right? Because we're constantly talking about uh, rights of older adults and values and recognition for a group of folks who are really underappreciated and recognized and discriminated against in a lot of spaces. So I didn't get enough of the advocacy part, a little bit of the research and too much bureaucracy. And I decided like I wanted to do more research, but feel like it had more of an advocacy bent, like working for a research institute that was moving the dial forward for older adults who were underserved. And these folk specifically work in the nursing home setting. So I thought, well, the one of the most vulnerable places we could get, let's do it. So and where rights need to be honored and protected. Exactly. And it was during COVID. So even more so a stark contrast between who matters and who doesn't. And even in aging. Um, the folks that matter the least were the folks in the nursing home. So that was a good place for me to be professionally. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for doing this important work. And I hope it meets your your professional and personal goals and needs. You know, someday I don't think I'll do research at all and I'll just be in a nonprofit somewhere using those skills, those analytic skills, you know, to look at patterns and existing data and tell people like, this is what you should be doing to making your agenda more visible and getting more rights for hopefully older adults. That would be like a dream job. And speaking of research and advocacy and rights, one of your areas of specialty and research and which maybe culminated, maybe didn't, but was represented at least in a, in a recent um, clinical gerontologist journal was on sexual health rights and sex rights for older adults. So the clinical gerontologist is a scientific journal that is peer reviewed. I've reviewed some of the cannabis articles, actually, because so many caregivers are using cannabis and wanting more information. And I didn't have that information. So I said, well, I'll review and keep learning. But so there was a recent special issue, which is volume 44 that came out um, just last month or um, in 2021, and it's called Sexuality in Later Life. 
And you were the editor of this particular um, journal. And I wanted to highlight something that you you opened that that journal saying, which was talking about sexual citizens. And so if it's okay with you, I'm going to just quote you. And I think you oh, were yeah. quoting somebody else. So Yeah, quote um, of a quote. A quote of a quote, yeah. Uh, it's like a parenthesis within a parenthesis. Yes. Okay, so here we go. And and it was one of the first times I had, and maybe I just have skipped by it before, but um, the term sexual citizen, and I really um, enjoy it. And I wanted, I wanted just to share it with everybody. So you write in, in even the first paragraph here, sexual wellness is part of the tapestry of mental health and confers psychological, cognitive, and physical benefits throughout older age. However, wellness is unattainable without first granting sexual rights that are integral to being a sexual citizen in this culture, defined as, quote, control over one's body, feelings, relationships, access to representations, relationships, public and public and socially grounded choices. And that was the end quote by Plummer from 1995. Anybody can get access to this first page and I'll make sure that there's a link to it in the show notes. But can you talk a little bit about how important it is or sexual citizenship, how important it is for older adults and um, and maybe start this conversation around sexuality and aging and advocacy? Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we look at the research that's been done, the scant amount that's been done probably in the tour, maybe three decades before this, I think a lot of it was just descriptive, like, oh, wow, let's just, this is happening. And here's a little bit of information about who's engaging in what, what's ha- um, what kind of things predict, like function or not. And I their their small but growing section of people said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like you're describing a phenomena that is couched in a context of oppression, right? Like older adults are not seen as sexual citizens, if you take the, the definition that I have. And you're describing something that is a proxy of what it could be because we put these constraints around it. So let's talk about those constraints and how they've shaped what we view as, you know, acceptable older adult sexuality in this box and what it could be if we actually opened up 
their rights to full citizenship in the different spaces that they occupy. So I think that's where I began in the descriptive zone too, because that's, you know, what everybody was doing. And I think one of the first articles I published was literally like, what predicts this type of experience or not, and a bunch of different factors. But then, you know, you run into people in your life and different experiences that you have and you're like, wow, I missed a boat on that. I better back it up. <laughs> and then you find out that other people are doing that too, which is what I found. And there were some folks at the University of New Zealand or Massey University in New Zealand, Paul Simpson in particular, who's been publishing more sociological or sociocultural criticisms about how we view aging, sexuality, and in particular in a nursing home context. And he used the sexual citizenship as kind of that, this is what everybody should have and put that frame around it. And it really made sense to me. And all of the things that I was reading about ageism and internalized ageism outside of the sexuality literature, it just everything started to fit in this narrative of, well, what don't, what constraints are there that are producing these snapshots that we have and how can we alter the context and what might that do for what we really could achieve? Let's talk about some of those ageist where the sexuality and ageism intersect. What are some of those snapshots? So some that I'm aware of are and familiar with are older adults are no longer sexual, like mm-hmm. ew, people being repulsed yep. by imagining older people having sex. Um, what Absolutely. other snapshots come to mind? Well, it's definitely um, older people shouldn't be having sex. So there's a value judgment on mm-hmm. that. Like you said, there's an ew factor or a just uncomfortable no, 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 no around that. There's that they can't, right, that they're physically incapable and or mentally incapable because that sort of edges on that myth of all older adults are frail and demented and, you know, those kind of fit um, together with they don't have sex, they can't have sex, and then they don't want to have sex, right? So your desire is gone. Nobody finds older people attractive, Uh, That's definitely one of those um, circles of myths in aging sexuality and that there are these only certain acceptable ways, right, that older adults can be sexual. And that is mostly to be laughed at, made fun of, or be disgusted by. So we have kind of these tropes, right, of the older, dirty old man, right, and the um, cougar woman, which... You, know, you might think would have been empowering, but the way in which it's depicted is not empowering, right? These women are predators. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing at their age. Their sexuality isn't being celebrated. It's being mocked. So well, it's dehumanized. Yeah, equating exactly. it to animal behavior. Yeah. And the other sort of intersection that's pretty stark, I guess you have it a little bit, is that women, older women are very much more like double, triple jeopardized um, in these ways because they're held to a different sexual standard in life, but also in older age, right? So we have Viagra for men. We have no such thing for for women. They, after reproductive age, right, aren't supposed to enjoy sex because that's not morally acceptable. Um, And so we have a lot of those sort of already existing gender 
depictions that just amplify into old age. So women tend to be at a higher disadvantage than older men. Although, you know, name your disadvantaged group, intersect that with aging, and it's probably not great for them. They're, you know, this many ticks back behind the charmed circle of sexuality. Right. Which is heterosexual men. Yep. Cisgender cisgender, young, fit, beautiful, you know, you name those. And, you know, you don't ever really get close to old when you think about acceptable ways that society defines sex. There are acceptable ways for women to have sex. There are acceptable ways for men to have sex. Most of the time, it's as you defined in those spaces of heteronormative, cisnormative, um, age, young, normative, and beauty norms. Uh, and then, and often, I mean, getting a little less so, but it used to be marriage, right? Like, or a committed relationship was the way in which it had to be defined, which X'd out quite a large number of folk who weren't interested in either second relationships or any part, long-term partnerships. Um, and that might be more the case for some older groups than others too. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So then they're left entirely out of the conversation. In the journal that we were mentioning early on, one of the articles, which was entitled Interest in Sex and Conversations about Sexual Health with Healthcare Providers Among Older U.S. Adults, um, they surveyed more than a thousand people between the ages of 65 and 80 and found that 50.9% of men and 30.8% of women reported being sexually active, yet 17.3% of uh, those surveyed reported speaking to their healthcare provider about sexual health in the past two years. And of those people, of that 17.3%, their their providers were not the the person who would initiate the conversation. 60.5% of the time, patients initiated the conversation. And so... um, I like to give statistics about how often older adults are indeed having sex. So those are adults between 65 and 80. There are other um, studies that show that, yes, you know, older adults remain sexually active. And so I'm wondering if we could have a conversation about what some of the benefits of sexual activity are in older adulthood and, um, and then maybe talk about what older adults and health and mental health and senior care providers can do to initiate these kinds of conversations so that the ball is not always in the older adults court. Yeah. Well, you're right. It's, it's a worthwhile conversation, right? Because we're hoping that we encourage and empower a group of folk who have benefits there on the table to take them up. Right. And some of those benefits are uh, social connection and a way up, particular way in which you can connect socially, which has been found to be different than just friendship. There are additional benefits that social connection of sexuality or sexual intimacy has, even on longevity, right? So we know that the more socially connected you are, the longer you live. And there are probably a million different pathways in which that mechanism happens, but I wouldn't doubt that some of them are biological. So there are a lot of protective factors among that that can be captured by having these sexual intimate relationships with other folk. Um, Also, there are some tangible physical benefits. There have been studies that have shown that even pain sensitivity uh, decreases the more frequently someone engages in what I would consider 
healthy sexual experiences, which are chosen, you know, reciprocated uh, experiences that are wanted and beneficial, mutually beneficial. <laughs> uh, there are also mental health benefits. So there have been studies shown that your well-being or your positive mental health qualities increase, your quality of life, uh, self-reported quality of life can increase, certainly your relationship quality uh, with whomever you have a sexual relationship with in can be enhanced by that intimate connection. So, and there are a lot more. I mean, there's some really interesting studies about even the potential for cognitive reserve and cognitive um, sort of, I don't know if it, I wouldn't say it's growth, but protection against cognitive deficits that you can have from a longer term, both intimate and physically intimate relationship. Again, exact mechanisms not known yet, but we do know that folks who don't do those things tend not to have these benefits at the highest level that folks who do have these sexual experiences still do. Yeah, it was um, an article from another gerontology journal, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, reported um, that people who were sexually active also scored better on cognitive screeners. Yeah. And I was, you know, the healthier our heart is, the healthier our brain Absolutely. is. Generally, there's so much correlation. If you're physically able to have intercourse and engage in a physical sexuality, mm-hmm. that, you know, might be healthy for your heart. And then that also is healthy for your brain. Exactly. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I would say absolutely. I think that there are so many ways in which sex is like a cacophony of experiences for your body and mind, right? It's not just increased blood flow, which could help with all kinds of different cardiovascular conditions, which has also been found, right, to increase your cardiovascular health or be associated with increased cardiovascular health. It's it has bet you get better sleep, <laughs> you know, for your brain, which is yeah. intensely good for your brain. Your social relationships, again, you get those positive benefits from. So you've got, uh, I want to say, chemicals in your brain to make it at least accessible for people. Chemicals in your brain that are pumping through there that increase your wellness and your physical wellness and your brain health. Um, and there's emotional and intimate connection and. The, feelings of sexual self-esteem that are feeding into all of these different parts of your brain and your body and your mind and that are likely going to produce long-standing benefits. So it doesn't surprise me that folks who are able to enjoy and engage in healthy sexual experiences for longer across their lifespan are building better brain health um, or at least potentially benefiting from a baseline good brain health and then being able to build onto that. Yeah. Another article from the journal that you edited, thank you, um, entitled Associations of Future Cognitive Decline with Sexual Satisfaction Among Married Older Adults reported that it was a 10-year study. And so over the 10-year study period, 33.5% of individuals developed cognitive impairment, but participants with greater sexual satisfaction scores at baseline, so at the beginning of that 10-year study, were statistically less likely to convert from cognitively intact to mild cognitive impairment or dementia in the future. And so that, again, was people with greater sexual satisfaction scores in the study at the beginning of 10 years 
um, were less likely to convert to mild cognitive impairment or dementia, just some other benefits. And yeah, back to that. And I wonder about like having a the purpose-filled life and this sense of connection and desirability and I'm lovable. Mm-hmm. I'm And um, what are your thoughts about that? I would agree that that's a key factor in that. So it's not just all of those physical ways in which, you know, your blood, your brain chemicals and all of those things. And I'm sure that they're involved, but there is this huge faction of things about sexuality that is psychosexual, right? So cognitive and cognitive conceptions of yourself and if you're sexual and desirable and seen as that and lovable, all of those things make a huge deal to our lives and the way in which we live them as a result, right? So we know that depressed individuals or individuals who have less mental health don't aren't as active, don't do as many things for themselves that are protective. So building up those psychosexual things in your life is going to be highly protective because I think when you have experiences that poke a little bit at that, the stronger it is, the more resilient you are to those. And then you more likely are to continue those healthy experiences or pursue another healthy experience if you know you didn't just tank your <laughs> sexual self-esteem because it was tiny because you've never heard in your life that older women are beautiful or older men are lovable you know it's i think that you have to build those things up you have to build those muscles in your life to keep them going because you're gonna get an onslaught of you don't belong here this isn't an experience for you coming out from society so the stronger intra-individual things that we can build up the better off we're going to be for sustaining sexual health um, across a lifespan yeah and even, you know, getting those messages from society, including young people in society. I worked yeah. with a family once where uh, I was embedded in a primary care clinic. So I only saw this family once. Um, the old, An older man had come to live with uh, his adult daughter and from another state. And um, I was meeting with him one-on-one. He was telling me he was lonely and... Um, you know, I inquired about his uh, sexual satisfaction. I think that was relevant to what we were talking about. And he said that he would like some magazines or something to help with his own personal sex life. And, um, and I asked if he would like for me to um, help him have a conversation with his daughter about that. He didn't drive. He didn't have access. This was a new community for him. He said, yes, please. Um, would you, and I asked, would you like to be there in that conversation? Would you like me to talk with her privately? How would you like that to go? He wanted me to talk with her privately. I, I presented it to her. She refused. And, um, I asked him, you know, I went back and shared with him the results. They had different, um, levels of religiosity and values in that regard. And I shared with him, you know, can I help you brainstorm other ways to get access to this material? And he, I think was defeated and, and said, no, I asked, would you like to come back and see me? No. And, and then I never saw the family again. Um, and I, and I just think, you know, so many, there are so many transitions in his life to move from one state to another, to move from independent living to living with an adult child. And then now from moving from a sexual being to 
this is no longer an option for you, or we don't value it anymore. And, um, and just the, the sort of litany of losses and transitions for him. And, um, and then I didn't know what came of it. My hope is that somehow it worked out for him, but, but um, at times I'm cynical, so I don't know that it did, but um, that was my wish anyway, that he would find a way. Um, Have you encountered other situations like that? Yeah, not as much personally, clinically as I have through stories of folks that I've worked with in different uh, caretakers, actually, in care homes who've, bless their hearts, been very proactive and wanted to do what they could, but came up against kind of the machine, right? The system who either said no, or you run into uh, very paternalistic folks who want their wishes to be their parents' wishes or their um, residents' wishes, depending on the setting you're in. And it is very frustrating because it's another one of those experiences where we've stripped rights for or uh, failed to give sexual citizenship to people. And in an, you know, in an age liberated world, it wouldn't be the case, right? Because people wouldn't have conceptions about those things, you know, but also I think part of it has to be the sort of culture that is America, you know, and when you think about this, in places that potentially where you grew up in Switzerland and where folk in like Amsterdam, you know, talk to people who are caregivers and work in nursing homes there. And, you know, they'll hire sex workers for folks and they'll not blink an eye about buying a magazine or getting it to people because they don't see a value inconsistent thing there. There isn't this ageist overlying conception that this should not be done or whatever is, you know, you're going to layer on top of ageist. So I think that's another hard take on this is that we live in a particular context in which we're further away from those realities than a lot of other places in the world. And mm-hmm. um, it really is those individuals like yourself and like the folks who tell me these stories who are fighting the good fight, right? Trying to find ways to empower folks and have them live out their values um, versus live someone else's value system. Yeah. Um, I know before the call, we were also talking about um, sexual expression in the context of dementia and with that in the context of diminished capacity, because as the illness course of dementia progresses, people often will lose capacity to make certain decisions about their lives and maintain other uh, access to other decision-making and often sexual decision-making can maintain even after we lose capacity to drive or lose capacity to, um, you know, manage our finances or, or vote. And so we can, um, um, and so I know you and I both have a real shared passion in that uh, topic of sexual expression in the context of diminished capacity, even dementia. And this is where I think um, ageism and ableism also really intersect. But some research shows that adult children tend to be less um, encouraging or affirming of their parent with dementia engaging in a sexual relationship than a spouse even. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think that's just a kind of a, another example of 
that paternalistic sort of point of view and removing some of the citizenship from the person. It's a difficult place to be navigating a nursing home and rights. And we know that they're extremely highly regulated organizations and often get dinged for things that I would have told them to do in terms of uh, prizing people's sexual citizenship or social or intimate citizenship. And I know that that's a difficult place to be. And I, I have a lot of respect for folks who go into that and try to live the person-centered care life with, for their re- with their residents. And sex is a really <laughs> sticky issue uh, in, in a lot of nursing homes. But, you know, I think it's partially, as you said, the way we think about it. It's not, can you have sex or can you not have sex? that coincides with can you make decisions versus can you not make decisions. I think what I'm trying to help people understand is that you can answer those questions differently for everybody. And there is always some level of intimacy in which the risk is low enough to be able to let someone engage. So maybe they have diminished capacity, as you mentioned. And like you said, I mean, I don't think that it's the same level of decision to say, I'd like to take away my life-saving medications versus I'd like to kiss that guy. You know, I mean, those are different decisions with different timings and very premeditated on one end and not at all and in the moment on one. So how can we say that the same exact capacities rule over those types of decisions? It would be like, well, I guess they can't decide what they want to eat either, even though they're sitting in front of the hamburgers, you know, like, so we need to think about this in a little more malleable sense. If they can't, if they're losing cognitive uh, capabilities that maybe keep them from making the highest level of risk decisions, the things that probably should be slightly more premeditated, like, should I have unprotected sex with him because I think we've talked about our sexual history and we're both have tests and we're clean? Okay, that's something that might happen in the real world. That's risky, but people reason through it. But oftentimes we're just talking about things like holding hands or seeking out intimate contact. And I don't think that that requires the same capabilities. So if you're found to not have these capabilities, fine. But what can you do on the spectrum that's low enough in risk in terms of expression that fulfills the need to connect and to be intimate with someone, maybe yourself, but it's at low enough risk. And that's what we're about here is the most you can do at the least, at the most manageable level of risk. I always say this is there is no no risk situation. I know that a nursing home doesn't want to hear that because they want there to be a no risk situation. There's a risk in getting out of bed. There's a risk in picking up a fork. There's a risk in getting into the assisted bath. There are no no risk situations. So why are you holding sex to this standard or intimacy? Like mm-hmm. there is a more nuanced way to think about this. And these two ideas of can they engage in this or what can they engage in and what kind of capacity do they have cognitively are, you know, affect each other, but they're not like this, which most people want. And I think 
there is no black and white either, yes or no. It's okay, well, they can't maybe make this complex of a decision, but they could make this complex of a decision. So in that level of expression, where might the risk be most manageable? That, they're, that they are seeking out in expression. And that's a harder question to answer, right? It takes a team, it takes loads of observation, it takes nuance. It isn't as easy as, nope, move him to the other wing right. so that those two can't get together. That's an easier decision, but it's not a resident-centered decision. It is not affording people sexual citizenship. It is revoking sexual citizenship, which most nursing homes tend to do by default. And so cruel. I mean, there are so many benefits even with, and there are certainly risks with dementia and sexuality, of course, especially if there's hypersexuality with dysregulation because of a disease process and all of that. But you know, there are also studies that show that it decreases behavioral agitation, that intimacy promotes quality of life for people living with dementia, all sorts of benefits in addition Absolutely. to risks. Yeah. And we're not asking people to become experts in how to do this, but I would argue that you already have the skills to assess risk and to mitigate risk and manage behavior. You do it in other realms. This is just the most difficult because it involves so many (laughs) opinions and it is harder to do, but everybody has the capability to do it. And I'm just asking you not to just say no. I'm asking you to think about it before you and make a individualized plan as Mm -hmm. opposed to nobody, not in this place. I can't deal with it, you know? Right, right, right. Yes. I've heard that before. (laughs) I even think, you know, people have, and I, I do appreciate that in the context of diminished capacity, this, this is, a wish, but my, you know, even highly educated physicians I know have had unprotected sex, yeah. you know, knowing that it's a high, high risk. And I think, exactly. you know, we are all, we all make risky decisions driving, you know, if we don't snap our seatbelt <laughs> right away, or if we eat a donut with diabetes. Yep. If you eat, if you drink a coffee while you're driving in the car, you've just tightened your risk. Right. <laughs> um, And so I I think we do also hold these standards that are like, well, I I suspect most of the people sitting around the table have done something risky sexually. Maybe you're not disclosing that, but, but, you know, we all have our own histories with this and, um, and that we're allowed to make bad decisions or unhealthy decisions and learn from them. I think sometimes, you know, we have so much of a desire and, and the regulatory, you know, the system is real in terms of regulations yeah. and citations and for, um, for long-term care communities or nursing home communities. So I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to minimize that. Cause I also know, you know, I don't want a, a place to lose their license or, or something. For sure. And then they have a responsibility to protect the safety of other residents. And if somebody mm-hmm. is hypersexual and, and is non-consensual because of impaired judgment or something with dementia, you know, that's also complicated. Yep. So um, I, I also was thinking, I was presenting on this and my husband had the idea, well, maybe we should just have a sexual advanced directive. Like if people just created their advanced directives before they had dementia, wouldn't that be cool? And then I was reading, do you know Hillman? 
Gammon oh, is yeah. a recent, yeah, I don't know her personally, but I was reading one of her articles from 2017 and she mentioned this, I think it was in her article. And she said, well, you know, that seems like a good idea on the surface, but, but one of the challenges is with sexual consent is then you're in the middle of it and maybe you're okay with this particular person touching you in this particular place, but maybe you're not okay with this particular person touching you in this other place. For and sure. that happens, you know, in mm-hmm. an instant, not in yep. an advanced directive. Yeah. You know, I think there has been off and on this idea thrown around, right, about a, a sexual advance directive. And there have been a couple of pieces, interestingly, by uh, in the legal arena about like their feasibility and things like that, particularly after the Rehans case in Iowa and that being such a high national profile yeah. um, case. And I think the bottom line is, if you're correct, there's so much nuance to it that it would be difficult. And advanced directives in general are a bit of a sticky wicket legally sometimes anyway to enforce. But I think where they probably have the most bang for your buck is if you're in a committed relationship and one of you becomes incapacitated, sort of having that, this is my life partner. This is whom I'd want to be physical with. These are my values around sex. And if if one of us becomes incapacitated, we agree to allow this relationship to continue in a sexual way. Um, within, you know, and you could even say within certain limits of, you know, obviously if I'm being physically abused or something like this person turns into somebody I don't know or something. But I think there's a potential for a more limited application in those situations because those like Henry Rayon's become very tricky when someone from the outside gets to make a decision about your already existing long-term sexual intimate relationship based on sort of the changes that one of you has cognitively. And that's tricky, um, particularly, obviously, if one's an institution. It's a lot um, more under the table if you're both at home, right? So, but I think that in those cases, it kind of gives us some tool to be able to use. However, I'm pretty skeptical of that holding up in court until we actually get a case where it worked. (laughs) But it doesn't, it doesn't mean it stops you. Like I, I had a, did a presentation once to a group of faculty in a psych department about my research on this. And one of them actually contacted me afterwards and said, my wife and I are redoing our wills and I'm interested in putting something like this. We're interested. It wasn't like he was saying, mm-hmm. I want this. <laughs> and he did. They changed their will to um, have some language around that if one of them became incapacitated and was living outside the home. And I thought... Well, good for you. Try it. Do it. I mean, what can it hurt? Hopefully people will take that as substituted judgment, you know, and say, yes, that's, you know, what they intended. And just for some background information, the Rayans case was in Iowa or Idaho. I get those states. It was in Iowa. Sorry, Iowans and Idahoans. so in Iowa, he was a state legislator or something, and and um, his wife had dementia, moved to a long-term care, memory care community. They remained intimate. Her adult children were um, opposed to this, were thinking that he was sexually assaulting her, charged him with rape. The adult children became his her legal guardians, then charged him with rape, and he was tried and found not guilty. Yes. And so it's this... Um, sexual expression in the context of of diminished capacity and dementia. 
Um, so that's that's the case. It was all over the New York Times a few years ago. I'll link to it in the show notes of the episode if people want to learn more. It's an important case, um, and and in my opinion, tragic for both Henry yeah. Rands and the wife who was separated from him and I think died and yeah. while they were separated because of the adult children. I think um, painful indeed. And one of my wishes is for all uh, long-term care communities, assisted living communities, memory care communities have a sex health policy, kind of like Hebrew home life has mm-hmm. um, in in Riverside, New York or something, they have a sex yeah. health policy and it's very simple. It's basically like we honor sexual citizenship, like you're talking about. And if we're concerned that judgment might be impaired or there might be exploitation or there might be, um, you know, shifts in in an illness process that's impairing judgment, th- this is our process for investigating if this is a consensual um, relationship or not. But it, it at the outset, it honors sexual expression and sexual citizenship. And then, and it's very simple. And it, and my wish is that every community would have something like this, and then have a way of introducing the family and the old and the the people moving into the residents mm-hmm. to this health policy, so that it's already on the table so that if there are concerns, there already is sort of a conversation started. Yeah. I think that that's got to be the way to go is to preemptively talk about these issues with someone coming in, whether it's a spouse or partner who's bringing another, their, their spouse or partner to the table or adult children, et cetera, bringing in a family member is to just say, oh, and among these other policies that we have, here's our policy around sexual expression and it's written here. Let me give you a brief uh, explanation. If this ever comes up, we can have conversations about this. Know that we these are the um, guidelines that we follow and feel free to address any concerns that you have. And depending on who is at the table and who takes up the questions, my sense is, is that most people be like, cool, cool. Let's not talk about that very move much. Move along, move along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, my hope too is that we will stay true to this idea of sexual citizen and amplify the rights of the resident as much as possible. Because as you know, Regina, you don't have to do everything a family member says. There is no legal recourse that they have for saying, I don't want my parent to do this so they can't. What they can do is take their parent out of the home and withdraw, obviously, the financial compensation. But even if they're a guardian over a parent, there is no specific legal action around if you allowed something to happen that was protective of harm and risk, right? And if they are a guardian, there is no dependent power or powerful, there is no durable power of attorney for sex. It does not exist. So technically it's sort of one of those gray areas that no one has jurisdiction over in specific. And we have too few court cases to like, know what would happen if we took this to the bricks. Right. But in most cases, they're just getting what they want because they speak the loudest. And that doesn't, cut it with me. <laughs> um, a resident is is your consumer. Mm-hmm. You are there to provide them with 
resident-centered care that is the best for them. And if this is the best care protected from harm and reduction, reduced risk to the point of high benefit, I think that your argument's pretty strong mm-hmm. for allowing this to happen, particularly if, like you said, you have said at the outset, this is how we roll at this facility um, given this particular area. I think it's it's good. And I know that that doesn't give a lot of folks <laughs> very much to go on because they want something hard and fast and they can, you know, say, okay, well, if this, then I'm protected. <laughs> but we just got a, gray, a big gray area in terms of sex in the law in nursing homes. Well, I'm back to your point about teamwork and and yeah. observation and interview and making decisions as a team also yeah. ombudsman can be helpful in being yes. an advocate for the resident and in making some of these decisions and it doesn't mean that we cut the family out either they get to weigh in they get to provide information because how else would we know a history and hopefully accurate because hopefully they're not you know <laughs> Uh, reinventing their parents' history to keep them from doing things. But you want to have the family be as large of an advocate as you can. There may come a time when you need to push back on the paternalistic attitudes and the boundaries that you've set around what adult children get to say and don't get to say about their own parents' care. But that goes for every kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I want my parent not to be able to have ice cream. Well, they want it and it's not going to, you know, produce a lot of harm. I'm sorry. Like they're choosing it for them. You can't police that. You're more than welcome to take your parents to a place that doesn't allow them to have it. Of course. They have physiological, physical, (laughs) emotional. That's right. What is sexual liberation for older adults? And, and then where can people learn more about you? Sexual liberation for older adults. I think in the future, if we had, se- if we were sexually liberated for older adults, we wouldn't have these tropes of older adults as comical or disgusting if they were engaging in sex. That would be one cue, right? We we would still have them in our history, but we wouldn't have this purporting of those myths and those stereotypes that are currently governing um, aging sexuality, including that they're asexual, they can't do it, they're physically incapable, but also that it's disgusting and dirty. Like All of those things would be sort of, oh, really? Nobody really thinks that. You know, oh, I don't even, you know, no. <laughs> um, we would feel liberated too. If you were a 65-year-old, an 85-year-old, a 75-year-old, whatever, you wouldn't have age as a hangup. Um, you would feel your sexual self if you so chose. You would have a choice of partner if you wanted. You would be able to openly be older and gay, older and lesbian, older and bi, older and trans, you know, black, older and trans, whatever it was, we would be able to be out and about and feel confident, but safe, also safe in those spaces. And I think those things would key me into I feel like we're becoming liberated and people are safe and confident and proud and not oppressed. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity is out there for them to have safe, 
chosen experiences, regardless of who you are as an older adult. Uh, You are no longer fettered to it must be heterosexual. It must be with a same age person. It must be only cute expressions. You know, those things would be gone. (laughs) (laughs) And a sense of security and where you are choosing to express these aspects of your life. Yeah. I wouldn't be harmed or. Yeah. I wouldn't have to worry if I was, I know, an potentially like an older trans woman or an older trans man of going into spaces and expressing that with my partner and being either at least denigrated, but at most harmed physically because of my expressions, there would be a sense that I feel confident in the spaces I'm in of being who I am and expressing it the way I feel is authentic for me. You can feel free to contact me at my personal email at m-a-g-g-i-e dot m-a-i dot two nine at gmail.com. And I'll be the most likely to respond from that one. So please do ask questions, give comments. I like this stuff. So it's my all time favorite. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on sexual citizenship and sexual liberation with us. And here is to a more empowered and less oppressed, more authentic life for all of us. That's right. You're here. Yay. You're welcome. (laughs) Let's make the world secure for everybody. Wasn't that a great interview with Dr. Syme? I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about LGBTQ older adults. It's an important part of the conversation when talking about sexual health and aging, because sexual health and aging has to do with relationships and belonging and connection. And so let's talk about it. As mental health and senior care providers, we must shift the narrative about aging and sexuality toward a more accurate and holistic view. We heard in this interview that there are many documented benefits to sexual relationships in older adulthood and align with how holding an accurate and holistic view, we cannot assume that our older clients are straight or gender majority. Um, The intersection we know of discrimination experienced by older LGBTQ adults and ageism is profound. In fact, many studies show that older LGBTQ folks fear having to recloset themselves when moving into long-term care, and many actually do recloset themselves. So when the the time comes to move into long-term care, many actually do choose to hide their sexual orientation for safety and for belonging. And that is heartbreaking, honestly. And then when we talk about transgender, gender nonconforming or gender minority folks, the experience of transgender older adults is even more dire. There are studies showing that many older transgender folks prefer death by suicide over moving into a long-term care. We have to do better. Even in my own clinical practice, in the span of six weeks, two older adults married to spouses of the opposite sex each of whom I'd been working with an individual therapy to manage depression and anxiety, revealed to me that they'd been in same-sex relationships earlier in their lives. 
And while they loved their spouses, they feared that their lives would end without experiencing that deeper kind of love ever again. So of course, we spent many sessions processing the suffering that LGBTQ phobia had caused them, grieving missed opportunities um, in their lives, and creating a space where they could be seen and valued for who they are. As therapists, as mental health providers, as senior care providers, it is on us to repair some of the damage that's been done to LGBTQ folks who have been excluded from communities historically and even now when we think about long-term care communities or even senior living communities that are 50 and older. There are still not protections in place in many states in the United States related to housing discrimination. We have to be mindful about some of the concerns that disproportionately impact uh, LGBTQ older adults, and especially as it relates to relationships and love and belonging. We as mental health providers can do something, and I hope that this podcast inspires you uh, to do something. Um, Speaking of doing something, um, I have a handout for you if you're interested you can go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash sex to get a sexual health um, assessment. It's like a sexual health assessment toolkit that you can download. It's free. Um, www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash sex. And you'll get a sexual health assessment toolkit straight to your email. Um, It will give you some guidance on how to conduct a sexual health assessment with older adults, and um, especially in the context of long-term care. All right. Uh, And while you're at um, www.mentalhealthandaging.com, don't forget to sign up to get your continuing education credits. I'll see you next week. Bye for now. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy but I got something for you in my free 10 minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss. You'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.